0: If you have an antique paper Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If if you're using a phone or a device, navigate to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17, Abraham Lincoln once said, We can complain because rose bushes have thorns, or rejoice because thorn bushes have roses. It depends on how you look at it. It's a matter of perspective. I know you've heard that before. If you were stranded on a deserted island for a while, you would be ecstatic to see a boat. But if you were the one on the boat who hadn't seen land in a while, you would be ecstatic to see the island. It just depends on your perspective. And the way we view things, our perspective is influenced and affected by a lot of things in our lives. Where we were raised, who our parents are, who our friends are, just all sorts of things like that. But the most important thing that should affect our perspective is our faith. We should look at this world, the things that happen in our lives, things that happen in our church, things that happen in our nation. We should look at things through the eyes of God. We should see things and interpret things the way God views them, the way God sees them. And we'll see that this morning in David's life as we begin our two-week study at one of the most beloved stories and arguably the most famous story in the Old Testament, which is the story of David and Goliath. The story of David and Goliath goes beyond religious settings. It invades multiple aspects of our culture. You can be completely unreligious and still have an idea of David and Goliath. We use the analogy of David and Goliath in sports all the time. If there's a mismatch and there's no way the quote little guy can win, it's a David versus Goliath battle. We can use it in really in any realm. If you use the word Goliath, you could say that that business is a Goliath in that industry. And we know exactly what that means. It's just David and Goliath is is such a well-known and beloved story. let's not at all think that just because we've probably heard the story before that there's nothing we can learn from it now. And as we look at the first part of the story today, I want you to be thinking about your perspective. How How do you view things in your life? Let's look at the first three verses where the author of 1 Samuel kind of sets the scene for us. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shekoh, which belongs to Judah, and pitched between Shekoh and Azekah, in Ephesh-damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah, and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. At some point after Samuel anointed David... As the next king, the Philistines invaded Israel. We don't know how long, uh, how much time has passed. It hasn't been much time, though. David is still, we'll see, he's still under the age of 20 because he's not serving as a soldier yet. You had to be 20 years old to serve as a soldier. So he is still that, that teenage boy who has been anointed by Samuel who has served in Saul's court musically for some time. Some point after all that happened, the Philistines invaded Israel yet again. And it's important for us to realize that this was an invasion by the Philistines. The author tells us that they came into lands that belonged to Judah. They're the aggressors. They're the ones who are, quote, starting this. They came into Israel threatening God's people. And the scene that the author describes is that of of these two armies facing each other on opposing mountains with this valley and this field between them. And all of this was happening about 15 miles east of Bethlehem, which is David's hometown. And so we have the larger scope, but then almost like a cameraman just zooming in, verse 4 through 7 just focuses on one man in particular. And it's a man named Goliath. Verse 4, And there went out a champion of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And one bearing a shield went before him. The description of Goliath... Is the longest and most detailed description of any soldier in the entire Old Testament. Just happens to not be a Jew. Happens to be a Philistine champion that is described in more detail than anyone else. Goliath's height has been debated, ranging anywhere from nearly seven feet tall up to nine feet nine inches tall, depending on the source that you that you look at. But he was indeed a giant. We shouldn't be surprised by even the, the highest range, nine feet, nine inches. And it doesn't cause us to doubt the accuracy of the Bible. If it was Goliath really that tall, I have no reason to doubt it whatsoever. Even in our world now, as, as humanity has grown larger as a whole, we have, quote, giants among us. You ever watch the NBA? Have you ever seen Shaquille O'Neal? I wouldn't want to fight him. He's a giant to me. And even, even beyond normal NBA centers, there was a man who lived in the 1900s. His name was Robert Wadlow. And he died when he was 22 years old in 1954. And his height was 8 feet 11 inches tall. That's in the 1950s. So. Why would we doubt that there could have been a man, Goliath, then that was a giant towering over everyone else? There is no reason to doubt that whatsoever. He was undoubtedly gigantic. The weapons and the armor that he used even further proves that. When most Israelite soldiers, which we read back in chapter 13, most Israelite soldiers didn't even have true swords and would have worn normal clothes in battle. Goliath has a helmet made of bronze. And if it was one of those helmets that had some sort of decoration up top, it would make that height even look even taller and more intimidating. The armor that's described, this coat of mail that covered his torso, weighed about 126 pounds. Have you ever worked out with a 10-pound or 20-pound weight vest on? It's hard. Goliath was so huge and so strong that his armor covering his his torso was over 100 pounds. Just think about that for a minute. Protecting his legs were these bronze knee and shin protectors. Draped over his back was a curved sword or a javelin. King James translation translates it as target, but it's not a bullseye. It was a weapon. It was a javelin or some sort of curved sword and then... His spear is so big that it's described as a weaver's beam. The iron point on the end of his spear, just the point, weighed about 15 pounds. You have to be strong to wield a spear that has a 15-pound point on it. And if all that wasn't enough, he had another soldier who would go before him, bearing no doubt one of those huge rectangular shields. For even more protection, as if this giant needed protection. Goliath was indeed the champion of the camp. And that's how he's described. And the phrase champion of the camp, it's it's a really awesome phrase. It literally means the man between two armies. Goliath was the man between two armies. And that's, that's exactly who he was because if you look at verse, 11, uh, verse 8 through 11, and then we'll skip to verse 16 in a minute. What Goliath would do is that each morning and each evening, he would come out of the Philistine camp and he would stand between the two armies. And he would mock the Israelites. He would challenge them, anyone who would fight him. Look at verse 8 through 11. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they, uh, the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And skip down to verse 16 real quick. The Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself 40 days. Goliath's proposal that he came forth every morning and every evening was what we would call a contest of champions. Instead of both armies fighting together and all kinds of soldiers being injured and losing their lives and just no telling how much blood would be shed if both armies fought, each army could send forth one representative to fight on their behalf. The loser's nation would be enslaved to the victor's nation. We may think that doesn't sound very good, but... It sounds a lot better than the prospect of thousands and thousands of people losing their lives. And so this actually was not completely uncommon in the ancient world, although it was uncommon for the Jews, which is maybe why Goliath has to explain himself and explain the terms so much. But again, not completely uncommon in the ancient world, but there are historians debate whether or not the losing nation actually fulfilled their end of the bargain. The Goliath and the Philistines won't do it at the end. When David kills Goliath, the Philistines don't just surrender themselves over and say, okay, we're going to be slaves. But this contest of, champion, of champions is put forth. This giant steps forward twice a day, mocking the Israelites, making fun of the army, challenging anyone to battle with him with the fate of their nation. to that one battle. And it went on for 40 days. And each day, Goliath would return to the Philistine camp with no takers. It's important for us to know just how physically imposing Goliath was to really understand this That's why we're given such a description of him in those verses. Goliath was as physically imposing and as mentally intimidating as you could possibly imagine. Yes, his size, his strength, his armor, his weapons. No man in their right mind would want to go and fight with him. But even add to that the arrogant confidence of his challenge. For 40 days he comes out there and says... Give me your best soldier, and I will surrender my entire nation to you if he beats me. Somebody who's that confident, I don't know that you want to go fight that man who's already towering over you and whose armor weighs as much as you might. Goliath was unbeatable, he's invincible, he is unshakable. And we need to truly grasp everything about Goliath because it makes us understand. The fear that he produced and why no Israelite would come forward and fight him and it also makes us more amazed by the faith of David at the end of the story. Goliath and his intimidation tactics, they worked. Verse 11 tells us that terror filled the hearts of the Israelites. They were scared to death of this man. No soldier wanted any part of Goliath's challenge But think back a few chapters in 1 Samuel. Isn't this exactly why the Jews clamored for an earthly king? We want someone to go before us and fight our battles. We want a man that we can look to and trust who will go out before us and lead us into battle. So here you go, King Saul. What are you going to do as their king when there's a champion of the Philistine who's mocking your army, mocking your God, challenging you every day and night for 40 days? Saul does nothing. He is scared to death, just like his men. In fact, if you look back at verse 11, he is singled out as being afraid. Saul is no different than all the other Israelite soldiers. They are completely frozen in fear at the appearance of this giant. But what have we learned about outward appearances so far in 1 Samuel? Don't trust in those things. That's not what God looks at, right? That's not why David was anointed king. It was because God looked on his heart. And so it's interesting that through all this, we we have the Israelite armies and their king in fear because of the outward appearance of something. Instead of trusting in God to deliver them. So with all that in mind, we're reintroduced to David in verse 12 through 15. The author says, Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons. And the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to battle. The names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next unto him Abinadab and the third Shammah. And David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Even though David had spent some time at this point playing music in Saul's court to help relieve that that evil spirit from him that was tormenting him, he's still not serving as a soldier. You have to be 20 to serve as a soldier. So we know David is not 20 years old yet at this point. He is still, again, just that, that teenage shepherd boy And he apparently was allowed to go back and forth between Saul's court and his home in Bethlehem for some time. And now that Saul is away in battle, David returned back to to Jesse at Bethlehem and to their home. And I love verse 15. It's something very simple. We would skim over it. It's not that big a deal. But it says that he went to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. I love that because it shows David's humility. He's been anointed as the next king. He has been invited to the royal court to play his harp. But when he goes home, he's still a boy who has respect for his father and who loves the sheep. He's not too big. He's not too good. He hasn't, quote, arrived so much that he will not humble himself to the lowly task of shepherding helping his parents out, doing what they need him to do, which again foreshadows the fact that this man will be a great king when that time comes. If you look in verse 17 to 24, we'll read here in just a moment, he's still a teenage boy at this point. And when his father asks him to do something, he's going to do it. And Jesse will send David to the battle to not only to check on his brothers and see how things are going, but also to take them some more supplies. So look at verse 17 through 24. And Jesse said unto David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to thy brethren. And carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand. And look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Verse 20, And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper. And took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines and spake according to the same words... And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, and were sore afraid. David is sent to take some supplies to his brothers and find out how things are going. It's been going on over a month at this point, and it might be time to to get some new food and to get some new supplies. And I'm sure Jesse just wanted to find out how things were going as well. In verse 18, it says, take their pledge. This is probably just some sort of token as to how they were doing. It could have even been uh, maybe maybe what we call a proof of life or something to even confirm that David did indeed deliver the food to the person it was supposed to be delivered to. At that time in Israel, much of the soldiers' rations were supplied by their family, which is another reason David's dad sent him uh, with the food. It's been over a month since this standoff started. It's hard on the soldiers. It's hard on the families. The families don't have these men to help in the fields, to help with chores. And they're also having to send food to the battle to help these men out. And so it's just, it's hard on everybody. And the king is doing nothing. He's just scared to death. Jesse sent David with fresh supplies to see how things were going. But in verse 20, don't overlook the fact that he made sure the sheep were taken care of before he left. He didn't abandon those, those animals. He, he asked a keeper to be in charge of him. Again, just showing his, his love and, and his sense of duty. He will be a good king. He is completely different than Saul. And so David set out early one morning to make the 15-mile journey to the place the armies were encamped. He gave the supplies to the men in charge. He's hearing everybody roar and shout. And when it's talking about them being in array against the armies and they're shouting, they're not fighting. It's the same thing that's going on every morning and every evening. The armies line up. They start getting all pumped up. And then here comes Goliath and everybody mm. everybody's real quiet all of a sudden when Goliath steps out. And then when he offers his challenge, they run away. They're scared to death. Verse 23 has happened about 80 times. 40 days, morning and evening. It was no different. Goliath came forth. He mocked God. He mocked the armies. He challenged everybody. The only thing different about his challenge this time is that someone new heard it. David heard it. For probably the first time in his life, David hears someone ridiculing his God. Maybe the first time in his life he is hearing someone who is a pagan and who is worshiping a false god challenging the armies of Israel, making fun of them, mocking them, bringing shame upon them. And he sees the bravest men in Israel cowering in fear, showing absolutely no faith in God. No faith in the promises of God. If you look at verse 25 through 27, we'll see that David viewed Goliath's taunts in a little different way than everyone else did. It's not just a military thing, this is not just some national, uh, uh, on a national level, but David views this on a spiritual level. He has a different perspective about all this than the other soldiers. Look at verse 25 through 27. "'The men of Israel said, "'Have you seen this man that has come up? "'Surely to defy Israel he has come up. "'And it shall be that the man who killeth him, "'the king will enrich him with great riches, "'and will give him his daughter, "'and make his father's house free in Israel. "'David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, "'What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, "'and taketh away the reproach from Israel?' For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. See, all the other soldiers and all those men who were scared of Goliath said that this man was defying Israel. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of the covenant that God has with Israel. There's no mention of the fact that he's a pagan who worships false gods. There's no mention of anything. It's just that this man is defying Israel. And that was true, but it didn't go any deeper than that. But David has a different perspective. In verse 26, notice he doesn't call Goliath this man. He calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. Pointing to the fact that Goliath is outside of God's covenant relationship with Israel. This is not just someone taunting Israel. This is an unbeliever who is shaming God's people. He is an uncircumcised Philistine. Who is he to do this? Also, he doesn't just stop and say that he's defying Israel. But notice, David says he's defying the armies of the living God. The soldiers didn't bring God up in all of this. But David cannot fathom the fact that somebody who is, who is outside of Israel, who is not a believer, is challenging and bringing reproach upon the armies of the living God. David has a different perspective on this. Everyone else was looking at the outward appearance of things. David's looking deeper. David's looking to the heart of the matter, and he does not just see a national or military threat here, but this is a spiritual threat to him. There's an unbeliever mocking our God. And everybody else is scared of this guy? If you look at verse 28 and 29, though, oldest brother Eliab gets pretty irritated with David's interest in the matter. Why did David care what rewards would be given to the man that killed Goliath? Why, who is David to speak and act so fearlessly and ask so many questions and get so involved in this? He's not at risk. He's just delivering supplies. And then he can go home. We're the ones that have to stand here and deal with this. But we'll see Eliab, we know he completely mis- misreads the situation. Look at verse 28 and 29. And Eliab his eldest brother heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? Have you ever heard of Brinkley's Law? Anybody know what Brinkley's Law is? Brinkley's law states that if there is any way it can be misunderstood, it will be misunderstood. Has that ever happened to you? You've done something right. You've done something innocently that blew up in your face. Somebody took it the wrong way. Somebody completely misunderstood or misread your actions. You acted with good intentions only to be rebuked. It happened to Joseph in Egypt, didn't it? Remember when Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's house and time and time again he resisted the advances of Mrs. Potiphar and finally a time came when she actually grabbed hold of his outer garment and he just ran right out of that. He literally fled from temptation. The truth was that he fled, but that's not the story that Mrs. Potiphar told. And Joseph ended up in an Egyptian prison. His actions, although good and right and honorable, they were misrepresented by her. But God knew the truth. Here something similar happens to David. He is not being arrogant. He is not coming just to see some bloodshed. That's what Eliad thinks. I know how proud you are. I know you just wanted to come see some fighting. Anybody keeping the sheep? David? Eliad completely misjudges and misunderstands this. We know that David is acting out of faith. We know that he's doing what's right. We'll see that in just a few verses. He's, he's, it is already going through his mind that I need to step up and do this. Because he's going to tell Saul in just a few verses, I'll go and fight him. One author says this, Whenever you step out by faith to fight the enemy, there's always somebody around to discourage you. When you're acting in faith and you're doing what's right, and you're following God, and you know that you're doing what's right, don't be surprised if your actions are misunderstood and people try to get you to stop. The sad thing with David, it happened to his own family. His oldest brother is the one discouraging him from this because he completely misreads the situation. He misunderstands David. He's ready to go and fight. And Eliab completely misjudges that and kind of interesting to think that when Samuel saw Eliab, what did he think? Well, this is the Lord's anointed right here. This man has to be the next king. Look at him. Now we learn a little bit more about Eliab. He's a terrible judge. You don't want a man who's terrible at judging circumstances to be your king. Maybe that's one of the reasons he was passed over eventually for David. It's kind of interesting, though, that as Eliab misinterprets David, David's response has been misinterpreted as well. When David said in verse 29, what have I done? Is there not a cause? Uh, sometimes that's used in a motivational way. It's been, it's been taught and preached before that, um, you know, taking David's words, is there not a cause worth fighting for? Is there not a reason we have to stand up and fight? Is there not something that's, that's worth doing the right thing for? Is there not a cause? Well, of course there's a cause, okay? Don't misunderstand me. We have reason to do the right thing. There is, there is something worth fighting for, and all that preach is really good, but it's not what David was saying. Very simply and literally, that last phrase was just, is it not a word? You say, what does that mean? David was just saying, Eliab, what have I done now? I was just talking. What have I done now? I was just asking a question. It's just a word. Can I not say anything? David wasn't trying to motivate all the soldiers. Is there not a cause, Israelites? Do we not have a God worth fighting for? That's not what David was doing. He's a younger brother who's being scolded publicly by his older brother. he's just saying, what have I done? I was just talking to everybody. What have I done now? It's It's just a word. But David wouldn't let the anger and the poor judgments of Eli keep him from acting in faith. He kept talking, he kept asking questions, and eventually word made it to King Saul, what everything that, that this young teenage shepherd boy was talking and saying and, and asking questions about. Look at verse 30 through 32. And he turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner. The people answered him again after the former manner. And when the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said unto Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I'll do it. It wasn't Israel's tall, handsome king who was willing to fight. It wasn't any of the older, seasoned soldiers. It wasn't Eliab. While they're frozen in fear, hearing this challenge about 80 times... David hears it once, and in faith will follow God and stand up to Goliath. He was willing to do what nobody else would because he had the proper perspective on things. Because he had faith in God. This is more than just a fight, guys. He's an uncircumcised Philistine defying the armies of the living God. We'll stop at verse 32 today, and I can't call it a cliffhanger because you already know how the story ends, so it's not like you know, you're on the edge of your seat or anything like that. But There's one major thing I want us to take away from this first part of the story. Do not be afraid when you face Goliath-sized trials in your life. Trials that have armor on. Trials that carry heavy weapons. Trials that would scare other people to death. Because we can face those trials fearlessly if we'll look at them through God's eyes. If we'll have the proper perspective like David did. You and I ought to have a different outlook, a different view on things than other people do. Because of our faith in God, and because of who He is. We should view things through the eyes of God and not the eyes of man. Whether that be things happening in our world... Things happening in our country, trials that our church faces, trials that you face individually. Whatever it may be, let's pray that we view things correctly from God's viewpoint and not this world's. David is the one man who saw this deeper, who saw this more accurately than any other man in Israel because of his faith. The food that David brought to camp was important, but the faith that he brought would be the victory. The world may run from trials. This world may be afraid to face them. But what did we read in James earlier? I read James chapter 1 as our scripture reading on purpose. The Bible tells us to look at trials joyfully. Not because the trial's fun. Not because that's necessarily a joyful thing. But because we know how God can use those trials. God is so big and so strong and so amazing that He can take Goliath-sized trials and He can use those to make us stronger, to mature us, to grow us, to prove to us how amazing and how strong He is. He'll do that in David's life. You know what happens at the end of this story. But we have to have the proper perspective. David was a faithful man and viewed this differently. He stepped up and he was ready to do the unthinkable when nobody else would, even when his oldest brother encouraged him to stop. So whatever you're facing right now, we all have different trials that we face individually. Don't let that trial intimidate you. Have faith in God. And know that He can use the scariest situations to make you stronger. And to show how powerful He is. He's already taken care of the ultimate trial. The scariest situation, which is the fact that we are all sinners deserving of hell. He sent His Son Jesus to die for you. And if we'll repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we're delivered, we're redeemed, we're bought out of that. If you've never trusted Christ, I'm praying this is the day of your salvation. And once you've trusted in Jesus, you can look at everything in this world from a completely different perspective. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the wonderful stories in the Old Testament that we can learn from and apply to our lives. Lord, help us to have a proper perspective on things, even even things that we would consider great trials. Thank you so much for Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. We ask forgiveness of our sins in his name. Amen.